Exodus 20, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you show us who you are and who we are in you. So I pray in these moments as we look into the treasure of your word, move upon our hearts. Cause us to see the Lord Jesus Christ, to love him all all the more, and move us by your spirit to be your children that copy you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a movie that came out about 20 years ago. I don't know if you've seen it. And I think I've actually referenced this in a sermon now that I'm talking recently. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You don't need to have seen it. But it starred uh, Kate Winslet. She was a character named Clementine. And Jim Carrey, who was a character named Joel. And it was kind of like a sci-fi drama rom-com. It's, it's this hodgepodge of a movie. It's a great movie. You don't have to see it, though. It's fine. Don't hear me saying that. I don't get paid for this. For, you know, recommending Jim Carrey movies. But in the movie, there's a company that has developed a new technology. And what it is, is a technology that if you have a person in your life, like uh, someone you've broken up with or a difficult person, you can go to this company and they will remove the memories of that person from your mind entirely. You know, probably sounds attractive to some of us in here, but that's the conceit. That's the idea. This company has started this thing, and we meet Joel and Clementine, and they've just gone through this really nasty breakup, really, really bad breakup. And Joel finds out one day that his ex-girlfriend, Clementine, has gone to this company, and she's had him erased from her mind. And he's, he's angry. So he decides, well, I'm, if she's going to erase me, I'm going to do it too. So he goes to the company. And part of the process is they have them sit down and record themselves talking about the person, what they don't like about them, some of the memories, and it kind of helps the process get going. Well, then Joel starts the process, and he's got the technician there, and he's kind of asleep And most of the movie is us experiencing the process of these memories disappearing one by one in Joel's mind. And he's uh, pretty quickly in the process, he realizes that this is a mistake, that he doesn't want Clementine erased from his memory, but he has no way of telling the technician that at all. And so he's like scrambling to figure out ways to stop the procedure, to, to get some message out to the technician, and it doesn't work. And there's this dramatic moment near the end of the movie And he's in the very last memory he has of her. It's the moment they met. And it's crumbling around him. And as it's crumbling, his projection of who she is in his mind tells him, meet me at the place where we met. Meet me at the place where we first met. Well, he wakes up from the procedure, and he doesn't remember her at all. It's gone. She's like not a factor in his brain. He doesn't even realize there's a hole there. Like, it's not there. But for some reason, he feels compelled to go to this place where they had first met. When he gets there, she's there, too. And they meet again. And they really like each other. They're attracted to each other. They go on a date. They don't remember each other at all, but they feel compelled, you know, and they start this thing. Well, one of the guys that works for the company, he realizes that they've reconnected, and he um, mails them the tapes that they recorded about each other. And at the end of the movie, they're essentially sitting down and listening to these tapes, and they can hear it in their own voice. And, you know, they're at the puppy love stage. They're at the very beginning. They're excited about this new person, and they cannot believe 
the things they hear themselves saying about this other person. Terrible things, bitter memories. They're shocked at the past that they had both paid a lot of money to erase. But as the movie ends, they decide to try again. Even though they know that it was kind of a mess <laughs> before, obviously, by the takes, They decide to try again because they've realized, for better or worse, that they're connected to each other. They're drawn to each other. And to try to erase it doesn't work. They did it. It doesn't work. It can't work. They learned a lesson that the 20th century activist and writer James Baldwin said, to accept one's past, one's history, is not the same thing as drowning in it. It's learning how to use it. To accept one's past is not the same thing as drowning in it. If you've ever discovered like family secrets that pop up out of nowhere or something about yourself pop up, you can feel like you're drowning in some information. But as James Baldwin says, to accept one's past is not the same thing as drowning. It's learning how to use it. I bring all of this up because you may be wondering, what does eternal sunshine and spotless mind have to do with honoring our father and mother, right? Here's what it is. There's a weightiness to our past. There's an importance to the particularities that make us us, the things that have happened to us, our families of origin, and the things that have happened in those histories that we don't have to run away from. I think there's a narrative in our culture that, you know, if you really want to make something of yourself, if you really want to lean in and find yourself You've got to break from the past. You can hear it when the teenagers like, I can't wait to get out of this town. Can't wait to get out of this town. Well, as soon as the kid gets out of the town, they take the town with them because they will never not be the person that was raised in that town by these people with these friendships. Or you see it when you know, a middle-aged man's going through a midlife crisis and he buys the convertible and he breaks up with his wife and tries to find a younger woman. He will never not be the now middle-aged guy that has the convertible that was married to this person that has these kids. The way forward, the way to thriving is not pretending that we can cut off the past and erase it. And it's not being afraid of the past. We can do that as Christians. Christians can talk about salvation that way. We can talk about like coming to Jesus and finding his grace is almost like wiping the slate clean. Like there's an erasure that happens. We become completely different people. And the past doesn't matter. But that is a treacherous way that has, has befuddled many people. Because we can try to forget the past, but we carry it with us. Even when we're not thinking about it. Our bodies keep the score, as one author said. Our bodies keep the tally of the things that happen to us. There's a weightiness, as I've said, to, to, the, to the past. And we can't run away from it, even when it's a little bit scary. And the question that I'm hitting at this morning is what happens when God's grace enters into our stories? And it's not wiping a slate clean. What happens when the new factor, the overpowering factor of God's grace enters into our stories, particularly our family stories? And our way forward is not closing our eyes to the reality of the past, it's not seeing grace as, as, as something wiping a slate clean. It says, the author James K. Smith says, grace is not a reset button. Grace is something even more unbelievable. It's a restoration. Grace is not an undoing. It's an overcoming. So that's what I want to hit this morning as we're talking about what it means to be people that honor fathers and mothers that are complicated because we're all complicated. This isn't like... 
you know, beat up mom and dad sermon time. We're all complicated people. What does it mean to honor the reality of who people are and honor the histories in the past that make us us? So we're going to talk about that looking in uh, three different sections as we've done for each of these Ten Commandments sermons. The first one's this, who are we in the gospel? And I'll do a recap here because we've looked at the first four commandments. And as I've emphasized week after week, the lesson of the Ten Commandments is that grace goes first. Grace goes first. God did not send Moses to the Israelites in slavery with a list of things to do and say, if you do these ten things, then I'm going to free you. He sends Moses in, and God powerfully frees his people from slavery and then teaches them what it means to live free. So God's commands to us are never, here's a rule book to follow, and then I will love you when you do them. Never, ever, 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 ever. It is God teaching us as our Father what it means to live as His freed children. So grace goes first always. And in the first four commandments, we, 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 they firmly fix our eye on God. Those first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. So if God has freed us, and He has, then we don't look to other places for our source of worth. You may remember that. The first commandment, have no other gods beside me. It's not God as a pedantic like, don't have any of their friends. It's not it. Something is worth what somebody's willing to pay for. And what we learn even better than the Israelites knew, that in Christ we've been conferred a value beyond calculation. God moved heaven and earth to find us. And so we have infinite value in his love for us, and we don't have to go looking anywhere else, anywhere else for that worth and that value. Nowhere else can give it to us. And the second commandment, it, it teaches us not to make images of God, but the idea there is we don't have to create anything that will make our worship better. We don't have to become, you know, Michelangelo with statues of marble, like I made the best statue of God, now I can really worship. No, God comes to us in our ordinariness. He tells us, he isn't just giving us value and like throwing us on the wall as a collector, he's bought us for a vital, life-giving relationship with Him. And then we learn that we have God's name, and that comes with a calling to be turned out and to value what He values. And then last week we talked about the Sabbath, that because of all of this, we can rest. That rest is not something earned, it is something given. We don't have to hustle for worthiness, it's already ours. So if all of those things are true we turn to the last six commandments. Because the last six commandments, turn they bring uh, other people into view. Last six commandments have to do with our relationships with one another. The relationships with other human beings in this world. And the, the thing is, if the first four commandments tell us true things, and they do, and the gospel is true, what does it mean for how we live with our neighbor? What does it mean to love our neighbor? That's what the last six commandments are. All of this propels us into our world to see a different kind of life take shape. And so we begin with the fifth commandment. And God broadens our vision to not just include him but other people as well. If, if grace goes first, then how does that grace lead us to interact with other people? And God begins in the fifth commandment, turning our eyes toward other people. He begins by telling us how to interact with our past with the history and the family that has made us who we are. Imagine you're an Israelite there. You've just been redeemed from Egyptian slavery five weeks earlier. 
six weeks earlier. You're standing at the, this foot of this mountain and you're hearing the voice of God thunder out. But what's happened is God has just freed you and everybody you know among your people from slavery. The Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years. It's a long time. 400 years. And their experience of being strangers in a strange land has now just come to an end. Now, for the last few generations, your people have been slaves, an extremely violent form of slavery. Well, every form of slavery is violent, but this was life and death stuff. And now you've been freed, and it seems like right a really hard break with your past. Like you've been freed out. You're not going to be slaves anymore. You've been brought out of the only country you've ever known in experience. You're coming out and you've got to be wondering, what does God want me to do with this? Because this is the kind of history you want to forget. You don't want to go on for the rest of your life and say, I mean, think about the world we live in. There's so much pride and shame wrapped up in like, connection with parents, and if you have parents that are very successful, you kind of want to tell everybody, well, my dad's the president of so-and-so. My dad did this, and that's great. You don't want to go around and say, did you know that my mom and dad and my grandparents and every adult I've ever known was a slave? Kind of feels like one of those family histories you want to like store away. And if God's just freed you, you don't want to talk about that anymore. You want to just talk about the future, Right? I'm not a slave anymore. There's no reason to dwell on it. feels like a shame-producing kind of history. But what does God tell them in the fifth commandment? People that are standing there, freed, he says this, honor your father and your mother. Honor them. Honor them. The word honor here in Hebrew is a word, it's rooted in uh, the word to describe something as heavy or weighty. Honor means to treat something as, as, as having weight or importance. You know, we can often read uh, this commandment, you know, honor your father and your mother like it's written just to kids, and it means, like, listen to your parents and be nice to them. That's not what the fifth commandment... That is part of the fifth commandment. Like, be kind to your parents. That's a good thing. But the fifth commandment's about a whole lot more than that. To honor is to treat something as heavy, as weighty, as having importance to these people that have just been freed from slavery, for them to honor their father and mother is to honor the things that have happened to their father and mother. To not disregard or put away that difficult history that they're leaving behind. To not disregard their histories or treat God's grace as something that wipes that all away. It's actually to remember these difficult histories. Not out of a sense of shame, not to keep shame alive, but to realize that they are testaments to the transforming power of God. If you keep reading the Old Testament further, God tells his people over and over again, and I don't just mean this first generation coming out of Egypt. Hundreds of years later, he is still telling his people, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. And he's not saying it from a like, I'm going to put you down. You're, you're getting too lofty in your head. What he's saying is that history matters. It marks who you are as a people. Don't pretend like it's wiped clean or like you can just choose not to think about it. It has residual effects that 
matter. That what happened to you matters. What happened to your parents matters. Now to honor doesn't mean putting somebody on a pedestal. That is not what honoring anything is. To see something as weighty and to honor a thing or a person is to see it for what it really is. Not the projection we have in our mind of what it may be. The call for us to honor father and mother and to honor the past that shape us is a call to open our eyes and see them and see that past for what it is. Not to close our eyes and pretend it doesn't impact us, but to give it the weight that it demands. And as God's freed people, we can do that without fear. I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. Because that can feel like a really scary thing. There's a reason we have skeletons closed up in family closets because they're scary. There's a reason why we don't lead with like, (laughs) here's my family history of addictions. You know, we don't lead with that because that's scary stuff when we bring it up. That's not fun to talk about or think about. But who are we in the gospel before we move on? We are people with all of our complexities and all of our histories and our complications who are being renewed. We are people that have found God's grace, and it is not a grace that wipes histories clean, but it is a grace that takes those difficult stories and weaves them into a greater story of redemption. That brings me to my second section. How does this lead us to live as God's freed people? In calling us to honor our father and mother, God is telling us what living in a community that is founded on his grace will look like. And here's what I mean. It will look like a place where our histories and our family of origin and all of those things that shape us will be given their proper weight, which is to say it will be given a weight that cannot define us. The things that happen to us and where we come from, where we were born and to whom we were born, all of that matters, but it does not have the power in Christ to ultimately define who we are. They're not final verdicts on us, our parents, or whoever. Those authority figures in your past, the things that have happened to you or happened to your family, don't, do not have the power, do not have the authority to define you. And I mean that in good and bad ways. You may have had fantastic parents that poured encouragement into you, and when you think of the inner voice in your head, you hear the inner voice of your parent encouraging you. And telling you good things. And that's wonderful. That's a parent that has leaned into their calling as a parent. But even that good parent does not have the power and ultimate authority to define you. Now in our complicated world, more than likely you had experiences where you were called names. Where you had narratives written about you that were told to you by parents. You had boxes that you were smashed into and expectations and all the things on your shoulder... That does not have the power to ultimately define you. Maybe you had profoundly difficult experiences of abuse at home or elsewhere. Even that, as hard and weighty as it can be, does not have the ultimate power to define you. Maybe you come from a long family history of abuse or addiction or a history of broken homes. Those histories are real. They're real. They shape you. They continue. You carry them. But the reality of God's grace means that they are not ultimate. Everything, everything has to give way 
to the grace of God. It has to. It may not happen in a moment here in this lifetime. It may be new heavens and new earth before we see the reality of that. But those deep, painful things that have been hoisted onto your shoulder, they have to give way. It's a matter of time. Period. It has to give way. It may feel like the weightiest thing in the world now. It may be something that brings you, still makes you feel incredible shame. Things that have happened to you. But the weight of that has to give way to the grace. It has to. It's going to happen. I don't know when exactly. And for some of us, it will happen in the here and now. We'll experience profound healing as the gospel is applied to our hearts. But no matter what it is, no matter how strong it is, no matter how shameful it feels, no matter what that history is, it has to give way to God's grace and God's love for you. So in the here and now, how does God's grace interrupt our histories and remake our present and reshape our futures? There's a couple of ways I want to touch on. It allows us to forgive. It allows us to forgive. It allows us to be reconciled. It allows us to walk in wisdom. And it allows us to shape a different future and a different story for our children and for future generations. That is honoring our father and mother. Out of the worthiness that is ours in the gospel of Jesus that our parents and our histories cannot add to or subtract from, we can accept people in all their imperfections and their complexities. We can open our eyes and see their failures. We can also open our eyes and see their victories. We can forgive the wrongs we've experienced, not in a way that opens us up to more wrongs. Sometimes the best way to honor and respect the history and honor and respect uh, difficult folks, including parents, is from a distance or in a very close relationship with healthy boundaries. Yet the reality is we can forgive and know the freedom of forgiving because we realize that God's grace means that not only are our sins forgiven, that the sins of other people against us would be healed. It's true. It does not have the power to weigh down on us and define us. Not only were your sins, are your sins forgiven in Christ, but his work of making all things new means that even the scars that you bear in your soul or maybe even your body that have been inflicted on you will be healed. We can walk in the freedom of forgiving because walking into the freedom that God has for us is not only being forgiven of our debts. We pray this every week in the Lord's Prayer. It's forgiving our debtors. In the series Ted Ted Lasso, which is about a soccer team in England, um, there's this incredibly talented player on the show. He's the best player on the team by far. And you find out as the series goes along that he has an incredibly complicated to say the least relationship with his dad. His dad was abusive to him when he was a kid. His dad was a terrible father, terrible husband. And when this player was young, his dad would berate him and hit him anytime he'd pass the ball. He said, you're the best player on the team. Why are you going to pass the ball? You need to score, score, be ruthless. Go, go, go. And that became such a motivating factor for him. He despised his dad. But he thought, if I can be good enough, if I can be good enough, I'll shut his mouth. 
If I score enough goals, then he won't have any material to come at me with. And that has worked for a long time. He's a professional athlete. In the third season, he starts to go through this crisis, though, because he keeps going back to that well of motivation and it's run dry. He, he can't find the, the motivation in the shame. He can't find the motivation in the hatred of his dad. And his coach, Ted Lasso, when he's in the middle of this crisis, it's actually the middle of a game. His coach says this, if, your pop, if hating your pops is not motivating you like it used to, it might be time to try something different. It might be time to forgive him. And the player's furious at this. He says, no. He says a word I'm not going to repeat now. He says, I'm not giving him that. And Ted Lasso says, no. Mm-mm. No, you ain't giving him anything. When you choose to do that, you're giving it to yourself. When you choose to do that, you're giving it to yourself. This morning, the choice to listen to God's voice and to honor and see the weightiness of the imperfect past and not let it define us is a profound step in the gospel taking deeper root in our hearts. As I've said, we honor our fathers and mothers. We honor our past and our history by giving it its proper weight, which means realizing that our fathers and mothers and our pasts and our histories do not have the power to define us, to pass vinyl verdicts on us that we have to wear. God's grace interrupts that and overcomes it. And it is only when we can realize this and we can walk forward in it that we will walk forward unshackled into the future God has for us to be a part of a community who can offer this transforming grace to others. And that brings me to my last section. How does this freedom lead us into mission? Because the command to honor fathers and mothers wasn't just a command to, about the past. It was also a looking forward. Because the command was given to that first generation coming out of slavery, but it was also given to all the generations that would follow, us included. And for us... This becomes a calling. It means that it leads us to resolve that insofar as we have power to do it, cycles of sin, abuse, ignorance, and fear stop with us. They stop. And they can stop. That we don't have to carry it on. We can realize that it bears a weighty weight, weighty weight, on our shoulders. But we can say, as far as the next generation goes, not just my kids, but other kids, that I'm connected to, I'm not, I'm not sending that further down the line. It stops with me. It stops here. That what will pass on to future generations and what we will in turn also offer to past generations is kindness and compassion. We decide that God's grace is better than our bitterness. God's grace is better. And we turn to live a life of goodness, motivated by His love for us, a life that brings blessings on the community that we live in, starting at home. This is a whole life reorientation. I mentioned earlier about God telling the Israelites over and over to remember that they were slaves or they were foreigners, and He does it over and over. One of the first times He does it is two chapters later, in Exodus 22. We've been in Exodus 20 this morning. And God says these things to His people. Don't abuse or take advantage of strangers... You, remember, were once strangers in Egypt. You must not exploit a foreign resident or oppress him since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Their deep and difficult and painful history has now become 
a calling. God's grace has come into this story and it has turned that pain into a calling. It has turned that history into a future. Uh, one of my, I've already quoted him, so I might as well do it again. James K.A. Smith, one of my favorite authors, he's written about this very thing. He said this, Shame teaches me to look at my past and see something hideous that makes me regret my existence. Shame teaches me to look at my past and see something hideous that makes me regret my existence. In grace, God looks at my past and he sees the sketch of a work of art that he wants to finish painting and show the world. In the hands of such an artist, all of my weaknesses are openings for strength, the proverbial cracks that let the light in. And even my sins and struggles hold the possibility for compassion and sympathy. Sometimes only a history of pride and arrogance can yield a profound humility that shows the world something about God. Sometimes being left gives rise to the fiercest commitment to stay. Maybe you grew up in a family where everyone broke their promises and yet by the grace of God that has turned into a tenacious resolve to keep your vow. Maybe it's your painful experience of exclusion that makes you such a passionate advocate for inclusion. Shame wants us to regret our past. And grace wants us to see it as a possibility. Grace wants to unleash our history for a future with God that can only be ours, living into the version of ourselves that the world needs. The fifth commandment led the Israelites into mission by orienting them as God's freed people to be concerned with the needs and the well-being of others. There's a lot that the fifth commandment means in honoring past, and we've talked about some of it, but it's also, in their context, it was a protection against elder abuse. You honor your father and mother, they're still there, and you do not have the right to just treat them any way you want to. You care for them. They're complex, yeah. It carries weight, yeah. But this was a protection against elder abuse. It was also a protection against misogyny. I don't know if you noticed it. In this world, nobody ever mentioned moms. The world that the Israelites were in. You might get a law that was like, honor your father. And maybe don't kick your mom. It would be like, you know, honor dad. But then like, but it's not honor dad. It's not honor dad and be nice to mom. It's equal honor to mom and dad. Honor your father and your mother. What was happening here at Mount Sinai was the beginning of God calling a new world into existence, a new way to live, in a sense. He had done something dramatic in history, and we live on the other side of something even more powerful, the death and resurrection of Jesus, which sets us free. And because that has happened, a new way of living becomes possible in this world. And we can move past the measuring rod way of seeing other people and we can offer kindness and love. We can honor and respect our parents and all their complexity and honor and respect ourselves and all of our complexity and honor and respect our children and the next generation and all of their complexity. Now that doesn't mean that this is going to be easy. Living in this kind of way will often not be. It's going to draw up like weird feelings. And kindness and grace is often met by people taking advantage of it. It's just a reality of the world we live in. 
A lot of times the outreached hand is bitten, right? We know that from experience. But it's still worth it. It's still worth it because this is the pathway of freedom. And it's still worth it because, as we're going to sing in a little while, our labor is not in vain. Our love and care and honor of our parents or past generations or future generations even may not ever be met with what we think it should be. It may not become like this reciprocal cycle of, you know, it may not be that movie moment where you decide to honor this person and then it's great and now it's opened up. It might be met with resistance or gaslighting or whatever. But God still sees. God still sees. God sees when we don't retaliate. God sees when we move past that tick-for-tack, measuring rod way of seeing people, and nothing entrusted to Him is ever truly, fully lost. You know, the Bible's a book full of broken families. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Angela and I were talking about it recently. And I, I was reflecting on this, that I was having a hard time, and I've spent many, 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 many hours reading Scripture. I was having a really hard time of thinking of a single example in, in the Bible of what we would call a good dad. I mean a single one. It is a book full of broken families. And what that means is that for the writers of Scripture, honoring their fathers and mothers, honoring their histories and families, it was not painting rosy pictures of the past and present. Because when they were writing, they weren't dishonoring their fathers and mothers. They weren't putting them on a pedestal. And this was true in the life of Jesus. You would think, okay, so put yourself in the scenario. Jesus has died and rose again. You are at the beginnings of the church going out. Scripture's starting to be written. Wouldn't you have a moment where you're like, okay, it's kind of tricky that when Jesus came and he started preaching that his family thought he was crazy. Let's maybe not include that one. Especially considering a lot of those brothers that were talked about there in Mark 3 that we read earlier, they later on were church leaders. They were later on authors of Scripture themselves. Wouldn't you think like, okay, no, we've got to make sure Mark leaves that one out where we showed up at the house to try to put him away. We need to make sure John leaves out in John chapter 7 where we mocked Jesus. We need to make sure that we leave out the fact that we weren't even at the crucifixion. And that when Jesus was on the cross, he entrusted care of his mom to his disciple, not one of his brothers. We probably need to leave those out because that's, that's tough. Right? But what do we see in this story? We see a complicated, complicated family. And after the resurrection of Jesus, I'm going to reveal more about my heart here than I probably want to. If I was Jesus, and my brothers had treated me this way, and I rose from the dead, I would have beelined to them and been like, here I am. Here you go, little bro. Bow down and worship me. But that's not what he does. When Jesus rises from the dead, he goes to these brothers who have written him off as crazy. He goes to these brothers who had mocked him and left him alone 
and seem to have even abandoned their mom. He goes to these brothers and he shows himself risen from the dead. And they come to trust in him. When the risen Jesus stood before them with his grace, they did not respond in shame. They threw the blinders off their eyes and they let all that mess go. And they found in him the grace they needed and they dedicated the rest of their lives to seeing the community of the church take root in the world. For them, the grace of Jesus didn't change the past. It was still real. It was still included in Scripture. That's how we know about it. But it renewed those relationships. His grace overcome, overcame those mistakes and those sins. His mercy triumphed. And I think Jesus could do that because he, he can endure that rejection from his brothers because he knew that that wasn't in vain. He didn't strike them dead as the resurrected Lord. And he didn't strike them dead when they were mocking him. He knew that the power of his grace was real. And he knew what it could do and would do in their hearts. This morning, God is calling us, he is calling you, to walk into the freedom that Jesus brings. Your history, your family, the things that have happened to you matter. Don't pretend they don't. Don't think you can erase them by just putting them out of your mind. You carry them with you. They're not going anywhere. There's no eternal sunshine in the spotless mind. And even when they had the technology in the movie, it didn't work. Those things matter. But they do not and cannot ultimately define you. Only God can do that. All of us wear scars. And some of us have deeper ones than others. But sometimes those places of deepest pain become our calling to be moved toward others, to forgive those who have hurt us and to make space for and to pursue people who have been hurt like we have. I've told this story before, but my, man, my dad, who died when I was 17, my dad really disliked the church. And for good reason. He had... He had Tons of good reasons to dislike the church in his life. He distrusted all pastors, pretty much, which I get. I'm one of us, and I barely trust. No, I'm just kidding. But he had some really difficult experiences with the church. And he wasn't like this innocent dove who lived this perfect life and was just mistreated by people. No, he, I don't need to go into details, but he had an incredibly difficult family history. He inherited a lot of stories on his shoulder that he didn't know how to deal with. And he had struggles and he had addictions. And I know those stories now better than I did when I was a kid. And they're difficult to think about. It's not a history I love. I don't. But it happened. It was real. And I bring that up because so much, so much of my desire to plant a church, to be a pastor in Dunn, is rooted in his history of pain and rejection. I don't want to be a pastor anywhere else. I have no interest in being anywhere else. I want to be a pastor in Dunn. My sense of calling the ministry is so tied to this place, and I'm not lifting myself up as an example here, but it's because of my dad, because he was a man that was rejected by Southern church culture, and what he thought that meant was he was rejected by Jesus. And there are so many women and men in this town, in this city, in this area that that is true of. 
that have been rejected by Southern church culture, and they think they've been rejected by Jesus. And he is too wonderful for that lie to take root and to have purchase anymore. It's got to stop. And I can't control everything. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not foolish enough that I can think I can fix whatever's a- aching in this world, but I think honoring the reality of who my dad was, a man who I never knew to even step in a church building, is following this calling. And to see that insofar as God's Spirit empowers me and it is up to me that people don't find that rejection. They find an open door to the grace of God in Jesus to experience it for themselves because Jesus is too wonderful that, for that lie to go unaddressed. I want you to, th- I'm sorry, I'm like snotting up here, but I'm sure that sounds great in the microphone. Um, guys, I want you to do an experiment right now. Maybe even close your eyes if it helps you focus. This is going to feel weird. Maybe not. I want you to think right now. Bring into mind goodness, thing, good things that have been brought to you by your parents. Good things. Things about you that you love, that you know you got from your parents or from the uh, adults who raised you. And I want you to think about pains that have been passed down to you. I don't mean things they did to you, but things that you know about family stories that reverberate out, maybe ones that aren't even talked about. Now I want you to also to think of the difficult things you've experienced. And what I want you to do is to pray now that God will help you to start to think about what all of those particular things that make you you can mean for the calling and the rest of your life. How you're going to spend your time. How you're going to spend your money. How you're going to spend your words and your relationships. I want you to think about what it means to see those things taken up by God and healed and transformed into places of calling. Because, friends, that is what is happening right now. Be set free from the pain. Honor your father and mother. mother. Honor those histories and the things that have shaped you into you and motivated by the love of Jesus for you that you did not earn and cannot lose. Let's be turned out together into this world with love. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. That is not a grace that erases us. It is not a grace that erases difficult histories. It's not always a grace that gives us answers for difficult histories. But it is a grace that renews and reorients. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us the guidance of your Holy Spirit to know how you are shaping us as who we are and all those complexities, those histories, those things that make us us, how you are shaping those into our calling for the rest of our lives. Wherever you are placing us, help us not to think of the past in fear or shame, but may we see it as you see it in opportunity for us to see a different way of life happen. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.